As we finish up three weeks on marriage in our sermons, our lesson, the text for our sermon today is from the Gospel of Mark. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Rarely, rarely, does someone set out to end up divorced. Rarely. Occasionally, maybe under some strange circumstances, but usually not. Usually, when you get married, you plan to be married, to remain married, till death us do part. But by the time the divorce papers are being signed, those good intentions have been buried under a mountain of sin. Sometimes sin that has been accumulating from before the wedding, before the marriage even began. And it is that mountain of sin that mountain of sin that seems so intractable. It's the thing that people face that makes them feel like they have no other choice to do anything else. Anything other than ending such a marriage would be like trying to clean up a landfill. There's no sense in even asking, where should we begin? It's too far gone. But rarely does someone set out to end up that way. Of course, we don't get any help from the world in these matters. Remember, I began three weeks ago by talking about how the world thinks of marriage all wrong, treats it like a demolition derby, where the cars are for smashing instead of for driving. And the world teaches us all kinds of wrong things about marriage, teaches us that it doesn't belong to God, that maybe it belongs to the government or to the couple who are getting married. Or the world teaches us that you can do things in your own order, that the order doesn't matter at all. That's what we heard last week. Today, we are up against this in the world, but the world treats marriage as disposable. Like so many paper plates that you just throw away at the end of the meal. When they get dirty, you toss them. What's the sense in cleaning them? You can just get a new one. That's how the world thinks about marriage. It's tragic. It's heartbreaking. Because marriage is not disposable. It's not like paper plates. It's like the family china, which you clean time and time again, carefully, handling it carefully, delicately, treating it with reverence, holding on to it for dear life. And even when it gets scratched and chipped, you don't throw it away. You take care of it, and you treasure it. That's what we're up against in the world, though, a world that does not think of marriage that way. 
a world that gives some advice for how to make marriages last. Maybe you can imagine the most common kinds of advice. Good communication is key. Or endurance. If you can stick with it through the hard times, if you can kind of exercise your willpower, if you can grin and bear it, if you can tough it out, then maybe at the end of the day it will last. But the fact is that that's not enough. And this is the revelation that comes from Jesus today. That's not enough. The world's advice about marriage, about making it last, is not enough. Maybe you can power through. Maybe you can power through sin and disappointment and pain and sorrow. Maybe you can, but if the forgiveness of sins is absent, if sin is not forgiven, then that mountain just grows. It just heaps up higher and higher. And the fact is that not all failed marriages end in divorce. Not all failed marriages end in divorce. Some marriages end parting in death what was already severed by unforgiven sin by bitterness and resentment, a mountain. We're here to learn something better today, so we need to listen to Jesus. The Pharisees came to listen to Jesus, but they were always doing what our human flesh wants to do, and that is to kind of weasel our way through life. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus today, putting him to the test, recognizing that there's a problem with marriage in this world. It is difficult. And what Jesus says to the disciples and to the Pharisees sounds almost impossible. So the Pharisees ask this question, is there a way out? Is there a way out? If the going gets tough, can I leave? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this is where you can cue all of those kinds of testing questions that naturally come up. The human heart, the human heart is always looking for loopholes and concessions just like when we do our taxes. You don't really care about just giving your money to the government. You want to find a way to give the least amount of money possible. You've already set in your hearts, and we all have, and I don't blame you for this, that it is better to give less money to the government. And so we work to read the law carefully. I spent a good part of the afternoon yesterday <laughs> reading the law carefully, trying to find out how I can give them less money. Because of course, I know that it's good. I've already decided that it's good give them less money. And so we use the law, we use the law to try to find a way. That's how the Pharisees, that's how the Pharisees are working today. Is it lawful? Is there a way that we can do what we've already decided is good? Ending the marriage. Wouldn't it be better if we just quit? Wouldn't it be better for everyone? If we just quit, doesn't God want me to be happy? What about those things that he did to me? What about those things that she said to me? What if we just don't love each other anymore? Isn't that a way out? Those are the questions that the Pharisees are bringing to Jesus, those testing kinds of questions that emerge naturally from our human hearts. This is the problem with sin, is that it wants to weasel. It's always looking for a loophole because it cannot bear the glory of God. You heard that in our Old Testament lesson. Why did Moses put a veil over his face? Even the reflection of God's glory, of goodness and perfection, it was too much. The reflection in his face from just talking to God, it was too much for the people. They couldn't stand to look at it, and so he covered his face. That's why our human hearts work the way they do. It's why we ask these questions. Do I have to? Am I allowed to? What can I get away with? 
When you hear those kinds of questions coming up in your mind, coming out of your heart, you know, you know that you should stop and back up and think again. Jesus doesn't deal with the trouble of marriage, just as he doesn't deal with any kind of trouble. He doesn't deal with it the way the world does. He's not interested in learning from a demolition derby and how to drive. He's interested in listening to his heavenly father. And so he asks the Pharisees a question. He answers their question with a question which is the gift of a skillful teacher, to ask, to answer a question with a question. What did God command you through Moses? What did Moses say about this? Now here the Pharisees think that they've got it made in the shade because there was this one time in Deuteronomy when Moses gave them a law about what should happen if a man divorces his wife. He writes her a certificate and sends her away so that if things come around full circle and she wants to get back together with him or he wants to get back together with her, they can't because the certificate has already been signed. You've got the proof. And they said, see, Moses said that you can give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. They thought they had it made. This is great. They were asking Jesus to pick a side in a debate that was ongoing at the time. Can a man divorce, divorce his wife for any reason at all or just for a narrow set of a few reasons? They wanted Jesus to pick a side. They wanted Jesus to agree with Moses. They wanted Jesus to tell them that it was all okay. Jesus sets the record straight. He says, Moses gave you that command because of hardness of heart. That is to say, he gave that command because your parents were unbelievers, because your ancestors were unbelievers, because the way they were thinking about marriage was all wrong, and so they were divorcing their spouses, and so we needed some way to make sure that the damage would be minimized. So if you want to be an unbeliever, if you want to exercise hardness of heart, Jesus says, then by all means, use that law. Go ahead. Just like St. Paul writes to Timothy, he says the law was written down not for the godly, but for the lawless and the wicked. You only need the law to excuse you if you are a criminal. You only need the law to demonstrate your righteousness if you're hinging your hope on the law. The world asks all the time, what am I allowed to do? But that's not how Christians think. Here's how Christians think. How can I love my neighbor? How can I love the way Jesus loved me? And so, Jesus does not answer the question of the Pharisees. He doesn't ask them for details about some hypothetical situation. He doesn't think about it legally. Instead, he says, this is not how it was from the beginning. From the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is not like the way the world works. It's not like other contracts where you can mutually agree to disagree and void the whole thing. It's not like that because in marriage it is God who does the joining. And so it is not ours to handle. This we codify in the vows. You all know how the vows sound. They end in this way till death us do part, which is the kind of thing you have to practice saying because the words sound kind of funny in that order, till death us do part. We don't say things like, so long as you are kind to me, so long as you never call me names, so long as 
we love each other so long as I'm happy, so long as I'm not miserable. We don't say things like that in our vows because those are not conditions on marriage. This is the only one. So long as I'm alive, till death us do part. Because God is the one who joins husbands and wives together. Now remember that this love matters, this kind of love, the love that is exhibited in marriage matters tremendously, not just for the good of society, although that is a very important good, but it matters because this is the kind of love that saves the world. Remember that. This kind of love that says, till death us do part, that's the love that saves the world. You see it in Jesus on the cross, loving us to the death, giving up his life for us, even while he was being mocked and ridiculed, scourged and whipped and tortured by the people he was dying to save. All the way to the grave, he endured our rebuke, our scorn, our hatred, all the way to the grave, because he said, till death us do part. Now that is monumental, unheard of in this world, supernatural, that kind of love. It's the kind of love that saves the world. It's the only kind of love that could, that could take all of our sins to the grave and bury them and leave them there. The kind of love that wouldn't hold things against us, wouldn't hold things over our heads, wouldn't be heaping up a mountain of accusations ready to wield at the last moment, but would instead suffer it all gladly, joyfully, because he knew that that is the kind of love that gives us life. The disciples ask about this. They say, look, Jesus, essentially that's, that sounds impossible. How can anyone do that? If that's the way it is with marriage, they ask Jesus in another gospel, they say, if that's the way it is with marriage, then maybe it'd be better not to get married, if that's what you're asking of us. Jesus doesn't let them out of it. There's no wiggle room. He drives the point home. He says, if you're appealing to the law, if you're looking to justify things that you want to do, then the law will condemn you. You can appeal to the law if you want. You can say, am I allowed to? Is this permissible? But in the end, the law will come back to bite you. It's the sixth commandment that's at stake. That's what Jesus says. Adultery is on the table. So if that's what you want, you can have it. If you try to justify yourself by what the law allows, then you can only stand condemned. Again, Moses' face was shining so brightly. Imagine standing before God's throne and trying to say, but the law said I could. It doesn't work. It doesn't hold water. And that is why in every conversation about the Christian life, in every conversation about marriage, in every conversation about sin at all, the question is this. Very simply, what do we do with our sin? What do we do with it? The temptation that the Pharisees succumb to, the temptation that we so often succumb to, is to try to excuse and justify our sin. But that is not any help to us at all. We can't win that argument. God's a better lawyer than we are. It's only the Christian, only the Christian who can look at his sins directly in the eye and confess them. Who can look his sins directly in the eye and say, I have no excuse. I have no excuse for what I did. There's no but. There's no way to explain this. There's nothing except for the mercy of God. That is the only thing I hope in. That's what the Christian faith consists of. Standing before God's throne, exposed and confident.
that the Lord wants to take away all of your sins, to cover all of your sins. And so the Christian lets his sin go. That's what it means to quit your sins, to repent and believe in the gospel. It is not to be like the Pharisees, to make arguments or to put Jesus to the test, but it is simply to say, I, a poor, miserable sinner. But there's another kind of sin that we need to talk about besides the sins that we ourselves commit, and that is sin that we suffer. And this is often where marriage goes awry. It's not just true of marriage, it's true of any relationship, and so we should all pay attention. What do we do with sin that we suffer? Not sins that we commit, but sins that are committed against us. You don't have to think very hard to make a list of the sins that you have suffered. When the world looks at sin that it suffers, it thinks of it as an occasion for bitterness and vengeance. Finally, I've got the moral high ground and I can let him have it. That's what the world says. It is the only thing better than being right is being wronged, someone once said. Because when you've been wronged, finally, you can let that other person have it. It's not how the Christian sees sin that we suffer. The Christian sees sin as an occasion for forgiveness and redemption. The Christian sees sin as an occasion to show this kind of love that saves the world. Imagine if marriages were constructed in that way. When your husband or wife sins against you, you thank God that now you can forgive them. You thank God that now, again, you have a chance to show them love, divine love. The world thinks about what sin is doing to me, the harm that it causes me, the pain that I suffer on account of it, but the Christian thinks about what sin is doing to the one who sins, what damage it does to their soul, how it hardens their heart and jeopardizes their salvation. The Christian doesn't think about what sin does to me, it thinks about what it does to the sinner. And that is why Christians look at sinners with compassion, with gentleness and kindness, hoping that forgiveness will be received, that what is broken will be mended, that what is dead will be raised up. That, that is what makes marriages good. And that is the way of thinking about life, to forgive as one has been forgiven by God. That is glorious. That's life in the church. That's life as a Christian. That's life in the kingdom of God. It is to be like that good Samaritan who, when he saw that man lying on the side of the road, injured and broken and suffering and left for death, did not kick him again, did not add insult to injury, but instead bound up his wounds, helped him, and gave his life for him. That's what the Christian does in the face of sin. This is the goal of all that we do. Forgiveness is more powerful than you know. We have some sense of it. As you trust in Jesus and you see all of your sins taken away, you can have this glimpse of how powerful it is, but it is more powerful than even we can see. It removes mountains of sin. It cleans up landfills of sin. Relationships that seem dead and buried can be restored. That's what forgiveness does. It's the same kind of power that Jesus used when he spoke into the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus' sisters objected. They said, look, he's been in there for four days. If you, if you open that tomb, it's going to stink. That's how we feel about relationships in this life. It's going to stink if we touch that. But what does Jesus do? He speaks his words of power into that tomb, and Lazarus comes out. 
That's the power of forgiveness. It raises the dead. That's our hope. For marriage, that's our hope for the Christian life. That's our hope for eternity. But Jesus has spoken such words to us, words of peace, that he has taken all of our sins away, that he's taken our death on himself, that he was raised from the dead so that we might live forever. Don't ever forget that. This love, this love which saves the world. It's love that God has poured out on the world. And more importantly, it's love that he has given to you. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen. Amen.